0: to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK, Christianity and the left. I'm Ben Molyneux Heddington and my pronouns are he, him. As always, the new, mutated and more contagious version of me is Adam Spears, whose pronouns are also he, him. And joining us this week is the shared wife of this podcast slash commune, Sarah Molyneux Heddington Spears. Hello guys. <laughs> hey, how are you doing?
1: Hi, can I just offer my congratulations that it's only taken you seven episodes to have a woman on the show? Just really well done, guys. Really
2: outstanding. It's Ben's fault. It's Ben's fault.
0: You're being sarcastic, but as podcasts go, that is an insanely good record. Oh
2: <laughs> That's true. Also, I just want to question Ben's introduction there. A little bit sexist, maybe? can't believe you would actually say that about your own wife.
1: Which part?
2: the the shared the shared wife, as if you're someone to be passed around by between. No, no, no!
1: Uh... I'm the matriarch.
2: I'll go. <laughs> I'm for sorry, that. That's This cool. is a
1: harem, and this is the other way round.
2: I'll like... go. For that. Yeah, I'll go for that. That's cool. As long as. Uh... No, I'm not going to say that. That's terrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Adam is self-centred. He's grown a lot as the person, or it was really awful. <laughs>
1: I feel like maybe I'm giving off some mother vibes and Adams just can't say it to my face.
2: Oh, it wasn't about you. Which
1: is just adorable.
2: It was, it was about Ben's penis.
1: I mean, it does need support. <laughs> um, it's very much a warm-up act. Uh that's just, you know, gonna get the area nicely warmed and ready for the main event.
2: I am happy to offer my moral support to Ben's penis.
0: Full solidarity with my penis. <laughs>
1: I feel like the word solid is not one you can claim.
0: <laughs> Sarah, do you want to just give you a quick overview to the listeners of who you are, what you're about, that sort of thing?
1: So uh great to be here. Really, uh, really proud. So I'm Sarah. I uh work for the Church of England. Um I <laughs> I know, I know. I work lead in facilitating a fresh expression of church I
2: Uh, sorry sorry I'll stop now
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right if you want to boo the female voices it's fine it's fine (laughs) okay nothing I'm not used to um so I do that I am a I'm lay person so I'm not ordained I am a female I am queer I am disabled um, and so therefore it's quite strange to have all of those things uh, I guess involved in in the ministry side of church we tend to find people like me more in the pews so I work in a fairly rural area I also have an undergraduate and master's in theology so there's that side of me as well um and I love long walks on the beach.
0: So today's episode, we're going to do a little bit of a review of 2020. I'm personally giving it a 3 out of 10, but we'll, we'll see what everyone else thinks. And we're also going to look forward a little bit to 2021, where everything is going to miraculously get better, from what I understand. It's going to be a bit of a, a looser episode. We're not necessarily hitting on one theme in any depth, but we're going to see how it goes. Uh, and yeah, we'll... Uh, we'll see what comes out in the wash. As always, we start with a segment we like to call What Else Is On My Mind Grapes? What else is on my mind grapes? So, I think we have to start with the thing that is on everyone's mind grapes, which is Christmas getting cancelled. <laughs> we have to do this thing now where I tell you when it's being recorded because it's the 23rd of December because in the next day or two, all the rules could well change again. But Where we're at right now is that on Saturday, Boris Johnson announced that a whole bunch of the Southeastern London were going into Tier 4, which meant that they were no longer allowed to open most things apart from essential services uh travel was banned and the original plan which was to allow five days that people could have christmas bubbles and see their family were scrapped for tier four completely and for the rest of the country the christmas plans were reduced to just christmas day so you could see more people but just on christmas day and then as of today they've announced a whole bunch more of the country including where we are is going into tier four on Boxing Day to make sure that everyone gives the virus to their grandparents before we lock down properly. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, it seems to be a very much make it up as you go along thing. It's it's bad.
1: I feel for us like we're the overachieving kid that skips like year three because we've gone straight from tier two to tier four, and so I feel that kind of competitive edge, which is like yeah. We've overachieved. Didn't even need to do tier three. We've just gone straight in with the big boys.
2: I'm in the northeast. And we've basically, I mean, I know who the hell can keep track of what the rules are at any given time? But, like, we've always been pretty constantly in the top, like, tier. Like, the worst thing, whatever that may be at any given time. So, uh, yeah, it's fun to be in the northeast.
0: One of the um, crazy things that happened was with Boris announcing the Tier 4 stuff on Saturday, but not to officially kick in until midnight on Saturday, is that, and I'm sure people have seen videos on on the internet about this, but basically half of London decided just to fuck off out of London as soon as possible, which made a lot of sense. Um, It was still completely illegal under the tier system as it stood, but it was an inevitable consequence of Boris. Basically, saying you've got 12 hours until we put you into tier four and confirming that most transport would be stopped. So everyone went, Well, I'm getting out of here then. There's no point staying here when I could go home. So, yeah, it's all been a very strange thing. It seems like what we've got is. It was a bad idea, as you spoke about in the last podcast, to let people meet together for five days over Christmas and have all these bubbles and stuff. Like that didn't seem like a particularly brilliant idea. But the only way you can make that worse is then cancel that in a way that meant most people will probably crack on with it anyway, and you create a huge, huge amount of traffic in a very short period on the particularly on public transport to really spread that virus around. Uh, There were trains going out of London where they were saying on the announcement that the train was too full for social distancing to be at all possible uh, and that people would just have to deal with that. So it was just an absolute mess.
2: Yeah. And then you've got people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, calling people totally irresponsible. And what that is, is the government moving very quickly to completely wash its hands of its own responsibility for this stuff. Like, that's not to say that. You know, sure, you know, maybe people can do more. Maybe people weren't being as cautious and careful as they should have been, whatever. But you can't announce something. I mean, you said it was 12 hours. I thought it was eight hours, like before it comes in very suddenly and expect people not to go, oh, shit, I'm in London when I should be in, you know, wherever. I've got to move quick. Yeah, again, it's not to diminish that whole personal responsibility thing. I think there's an element of that, sure. But like the government have really dropped the ball here.
1: I think we saw this coming a long time before, though, where the campaign went from stay at home to stay alert and the changing of that language, one which was, this is the rules that we have made, we are holding responsibility for it, it's clear and it's obvious. Not saying it was always clear back then, but it was clear. Road directive to stay alert. And when we did it like that, we moved the responsibility from the centre to the outskirts and it became your fault if you catch covid and that was particularly concerning in, in that point of time where the people who were being most exposed were people in zero-hour contract work and people at more secu- in less secure mm-hmm. who were basically getting told by the boss you come in or else but i mean that's just been the whole way through it's moved to individual responsibilities and moving it to people like us and we're idiots. Like, I think it's just, it's just scary how we're putting the responsibility on people who were already so overloaded. I just think, yeah, we've been people have been let down, really.
0: The other thing that the government announced, or that Boris Johnson announced particularly, was that there was a new mutated form of the virus that was particularly prevalent in London and the southeast, and was apparently behind the increases we were seeing there. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, it turns out that this mutation was known about since September, and that as of yet, most of the scientists involved in studying the outbreak are not convinced that the mutation itself is more transmissible. They say it's a possibility there was an increased amount of the new variant, and there was an increased likelihood of transmitting cases, but that can also be explained by people behaving differently. So as of yet, it's kind of unconfirmed if and how much a difference was made by this new mutation but it was obviously used as an excuse because it became abundantly clear that something was needed to be done about the absolutely spiraling cases and the increased likelihood of the nhs being overwhelmed so it kind of became this excuse for for boris which then massively backfired because a bunch of european countries went oh there's a new mutation let's shut the border which is quite sensible but only if you take boris seriously which is usually a mistake and what ended up happening is that a bunch of lorry drivers were just stuck waiting to get out of of kent and over the border because they need to deliver stuff and it was all just an absolute mess.
1: So I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there's some Sikhs coming from Gravesend who are delivering curries to the lorry drivers, which is really lovely because being stuck in there must be awful. But the other hand, there's no toilets there for them. And we're effectively giving a bunch of lorry drivers some really (laughs) spicy curries. And I'm not quite sure the full ramifications have been thought through.
2: I mean they do have pla- they do come in plastic pots so like
0: Of course they are in Kent so you wouldn't really notice the additional pieces of shit there.
3: Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions, or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook, or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now.
2: Oh, hey, hey, we are the Garden of England, all right? Hence the manure that needs to go everywhere. <laughs> is that the
0: most fascist nickname for
2: a county? Who knows? <laughs>
0: So I wanted to tackle 2020 without kind of doing a year-in-review type thing because other people will do that better, but just to chat about some of the themes of 2020. And the first theme that I wanted to pick up on is something that we go on and on about in this podcast, but it's quite important, and that is immigration. Um, Adam, you sent across an article that you wanted to kind of bring up in the mind grapes bit, but I'm making you do it here. Do you want to talk to us about your favourite person in the world?
2: Oh, yes. My favourite person in the world is Pretty Patel. Because she's just the best home secretary we've ever had, who never says anything terrible about people ever. Yeah, so it turns out that Pretty Patel sent out a tweet um, at the same time as the trial for the lorry driver. It might be dry there might be more than one, actually, but the lorry driver who was yeah who was driving the the lorry in which 39 Vietnamese People died. So she sent out a tweet saying that um, they had died, quote, at the hands of ruthless criminals, and then deleted the tweet an hour later. Uh, And of course, by this time, we didn't really know the circumstances. Like it was, it was a, the trial was ongoing, right? So she shouldn't have sent that tweet out anyway. And the trial had to be halted, and the judge had to instruct the jury to ignore what politicians, certain politicians were saying. And it's just, you know, this is one cock up after another from people like Priti Patel. It's the same kind of thing, really, when you get these very right wing politicians, um, whether it be Boris Johnson or Priti Patel, it's always, you know, not just the fact that their their ideology is so toxic and disgusting, but the fact that it comes with this level of ineptitude that is almost as damaging as as the awfulness of their policies and rhetoric as well so yeah Pretty patel not my favorite person has put a foot in it yet again
0: yeah and i think it's important to acknowledge that Pretty patel even if she was extremely competent would still be a vile vile person but she is also pretty obviously deeply incompetent
2: yeah yeah and and you can see that time and time again um she's she's been fired for i mean she was fired for um going off to israel and lying about it basically wasn't she um she should have been fired or, or quit recently for bullying like it's just one thing after another with her
0: yeah absolutely whilst we're chatting about pretty patel we should check in on how the department she's running is doing uh, and that is to say, very badly, the Home Office has a huge backlog when it comes to processing refugee claims claims for asylum in this country uh and is it got a lot worse than the coronavirus. It was a pretty famously long backlog already, and it's only got worse and The Home Office have recently edited their guidance. And I'm going to read to you the beginning of the article about it from a website called Free Movement that do a lot about immigration law. It's a very good website. And it starts like this. On the 10th of December 2020, the Home Office published a statement of changes to the immigration rules that appear to be a flagrant breach of the UN Refugee Convention and i think that really does sum it up the home office have pretty much announced their intention to ignore the international law on refugees and what particularly pisses me off is there was a big hoo ha maybe a week before this about how the tory was were threatening to break international law as a fairly blatant gambit in their brexit negotiations that they eventually withdrew and a lot of liberal and particularly people that are still very big on remain lost their heads over it and were very angry about what was clearly a a gambit that was always going to be abandoned and there has been crickets when it comes to the home office agreeing they're going to ignore refugee law this is a much more serious disregarding of international law that is probably going to happen up until the point that they lose a court case over it which they Inevitably will because there's nothing the Home Office loves more than losing court cases, but it doesn't seem to be big in anyone's mind. But I think it really sums up what's going on here, which is that we have a government that is determined to use Brexit as a way to push harder, harder right on immigration.
2: The big problem with it, of course, is you know you say, you know they will get taken to court and they will lose, and that's probably true. You know we're talking about real lives here, and and the time it takes for people for whoever to take the home office to court and win more people have been deported back to countries where they're going to potentially lose their lives and more people have had their cases um, just lost in a system that doesn't give a, a single shit about how awful their life is for you know um you know the positions they're forced into you know yeah forced into being in um just because they want to not not be killed
0: I think that's really important you know the Windrush scandal there are still people that the UK government deported illegally as part of that Windrush scandal and they still haven't been able to locate them to allow them to come back to the UK where they built their lives so yes eventually this policy may well lose in court but people's lives will be ruined in the meantime and people
2: may well die over it I mean people will die over it like absolutely no doubt whatsoever this stuff is so dangerous because people do die regularly but those at the top um and and their supporters don't seem to actually care
0: yeah and i think it's important to you know talk about immigration more broadly here we are almost certainly going to see a um a continuing reduction of the ability of people to come into this country uh even Even people that aren't seeking asylum, but are moving for personal or economic or family reasons, you know, there's obviously been this shutdown, but we know that the people that are affected by that will not be the super rich. You know, Rupert Murdoch was one of the first people to get the vaccine on the NHS, right? So we know that the super rich are still going to be able to come in and out of all these countries at will. And I think it's really important to say that the reason that free movement existed in the EU was mostly about allowing immigration from white countries. And, you know, to to frame the EU freedom of movement as a progressive thing inherently doesn't really fly. The, The EU's immigration policy is very much Fortress Europe. White Europe gets to move freely in its own borders, but the rest of the world doesn't. But it is a step back from where we want to go to have that freedom taken away. It's not, a, it's not the best. We would like to see a lot more freedom of people to move, but taking that away is a step back.
2: Yeah, and, and actually, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, we, we have this um, general idea of the average Leave voter as being this, you know, virulently racist, you know, foaming at the mouth, um, gammon type, you know. Um, but actually, you know, I've spoken to multiple Um, friends now from South Asian communities who say that actually a lot of people within their communities were also Leave voters for you know, for the reason that it's a lot more difficult for them and their family to come over here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was quite a a sizable South Asian vote, particularly in that leave vote, and I think that gets ignored. You know, the majority of that leave vote was relatively well off middle class voters. The idea it's a working class revolt doesn't really track with the data we have about it. But there is also definitely people who are voting as you say, against what was ultimately a racist immigration policy from the EU.
2: Yeah, and and I mean, you know, there are fair critiques of that, of that way of thinking. But the point is that it is uh, important to remember that, we're not just dealing with one kind of person here.
0: The last thing I wanted to talk about about immigration was a section that I am calling we fucking told you so corner. This is about the news that Joe Biden is rowing back on his commitment to undo Trump's immigration policies on day one in the office, because, and I quote, it might lead to 2 million people, on our border. So he is quoted in this New York Post article, just to say the New York Post is an extremely right wing uh, newspaper. It's terrible. But it's also the first and only place so far that I could find with this quote in because it's disappeared from other places. So what Joe Biden says is the last thing we need is to say we're going to stop immediately the you know, the access to asylum the way it's being run now and end up with 2 million people at our border. So he's basically saying, no, because I don't want even more asylum seekers coming to the U.S. And it's almost like those of us on the left were saying, hey, this Biden guy, he's pretty fucking right wing. And he probably won't do half the things you need to do to undo Trump's presidency. And what's cool about that is he's proved it before he's even become president.
2: Yeah, it's... um It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's exactly the same rhetoric that we were criticizing Nigel Farage for when he said that when there were some years ago now, when there were new countries joining the EU, that we'd end up with um, something like 19 million people on the borders of the UK. Um, And it was actually, uh, there were not even that many people in those countries altogether. So yeah, it's the same rhetoric. And yet we are supposed to think that Biden is some progressive kind of messiah who's going to make everything better for people. He's not.
0: And to kind of tie this back into UK politics, it's something that we've seen over here, particularly in the new Labour project, which was pretty awful to asylum seekers. Most of the worst policies for asylum seekers that are currently in place in this country stem from the new Labour era. Now, they've been ratcheted up and made more extreme by conservative governments, but the conservative governments haven't had to come up with new ways of making life more difficult for asylum seekers. They have simply slightly increased the volume on the things new labor introduced. And this is exactly what you're seeing with Biden now, that supposedly progressive liberal politicians end up trying to prove that they are actually all about law and order and keeping this country safe, and end up doing the most horrific things to immigration law. And I think it is just a reminder of what happens when you let liberals look after the country because you think they're going to be better than the right. Their rhetoric is sometimes better. They may be nicer to asylum seekers but really ultimately they end up doing the same things and they're quite happy to echo right-wing talking points yeah i think
2: um it's it's worth actually giving a shout out to Maya goodfellows book on this because it talks uh in some detail about how you know the, the kind of rhetoric and the policies that labor particularly new labor but continuing well up to ed miliband's tenure as leader you know some of the stuff that they got up to with reference to the demonization and even actually just policy against refugees and other migrants as well.
0: Yeah, that is Hostile Environment by Maya Goodfellow. I have also read it quite recently, and it is an excellent introduction to quite what an absolute mess Britain is in in terms of how it approaches immigration. Very, very good. Highly recommended.
4: We break and divide every demonic confederacy against the election, against America, against that who you have declared to be in the White House. We break it up in the name of Jesus. Strike and strike! The angels have even disp- dispatched from Africa right, Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now, they're coming here. They're coming here in the name of Jesus from South America. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here, they're coming here. from Africa, from South America. Angelic forces. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Pika hata anda ata ora eke eka manda rasata. For I hear the sound. of Of victory, I hear the sound of victory. 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 I hear the sound of victory.
0: One of the other big themes that we've seen in 2020 has been the good old fashioned British theme of virulent transphobia. We've touched on this a few times in the podcast, so we're not going to talk about it loads, but I do think it's something that's been particularly awful in 2020. The reforms to the Gender Recognition Act went out to consultation, got universally or near universally positive responses apart from a few stock responses that were copied and pasted by anti-trans activists. But even then, the vast majority of them were positive about making life easier for people to transition between gender legally. And then they got shelved anyway, because this government is desperate to start a culture war and trans people are going to be one of the big victims of that. And then the second thing that happened, and I think we spoke about this last time, is the high court ruling that essentially is currently forcibly detransitioning a bunch of trans kids by making it no longer possible for the NHS and particularly the Tavistock Clinic to prescribe hormone blockers to young trans and gender questioning people who want to delay their puberty to make their lives potentially much easier in the future. And I think when you add those two together, it has been an awful year for being trans. And Britain is a horribly transphobic country.
1: So this is an article actually based on Freddie McConnell and Sean Fay went on the Owen Jones show and talked about why turf is such a phenomenon in the UK. I just want to read you a quote from that, which is that people forget that until about 10 years ago, it was perfectly normal for the British tabloids to out trans people who weren't public figures with headlines such as sex swap mechanic. We come from a tradition of huge national cruelty to trans people in the media. It made me think. About actually, yeah, that was so normal. You'd be walking through town, maybe when you were to school, and you'd walk past you know the news agent, and their the billboard was out the sandwich board was outside, and there would be those headlines. People who were not in the national spotlight, people who were not in the spotlight at all before that are just centered because they dared, they dared to step outside of a heteronormative cis perspective. And and for that factor alone, people who were living their lives quietly away, get plucked out and made a figure that we can all laugh about and how that was just so normal. And of course, that's going to have an impact today. I'm going to say this straight off, I, I don't proclaim to be an expert on this at all. So I'm certain that there is more than what I am saying. But the way I see the UK scene, there's almost two levels, and this was brought up again in this story, that there is on one level, there's the kind of Christian extreme right wing, which we we kind of saw in America in like the transsexual empire, but has died out to not be the quite the same level. But what is more, more prominent in the UK scene is this kind of liberal feminism. And just very white woman feminism that kind of cloaks itself in a degree of respectability that puts itself out as palatable. And it's so insidious in the way that it does that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it cloaks itself in the language of feminism and makes itself out to be a liberatory campaign, when in fact, it is about, I've got my rights, so I don't care about the rest of you. Systems, the company store, the paradigm of absolute control. And that's why we're just out here doing simple things, pointing out that we're meant to be in nature and be natural. And this is where we find the source that God made to transcend the new world order. And that's why they want to try to keep us out of it. I'm angry. I've had enough of these people.
4: they are bones of Christian murderers gone. There are giant death factories keeping babies alive. And that body parts What more do you need to know about these people? I go out and face this scum. They literally crawl out from under us. They have green looking skin and they run around screaming, "We love Satan. We want to eat babies." I have them on video.
0: Well, I think this is a good opportunity to start talking about one of the other big things that happened in 2020, which is the publication of Living in Love and Faith by the Church of England. So the Church of England have been going through this process for, what, two years now? Longer, I think. Where they've been doing the kind of listening to each other thing, where there wasn't a whole lot of listening. Shared conversations about LGBTQ plus issues within the Church of England, and. About a month or so ago, they finally announced that there is an opportunity for that to come to some sort of closure and for the Church of England to maybe rethink its stance by 2022, which is a hell of a long way off. It is starting to look like there may be the possibility to change, although they've made it very clear that this is not definitely going to be a change, but that that is when the Yeah, and I think it's really
2: important to think about what that sort of change could or could not look like uh, and how likely that change is to be. One of the biggest problems for the Church of England in terms of changing its position on equal marriage in particular is that the Church of England occupies a unique position within the Anglican Communion and that it is the Mother Church. And so anything the Mother Church does threatens a huge split, um, You know, parts of which have already kind of happened um with within the worldwide anglican communion and that's why we've had so long and and so bitter a, d- a debate about this and why we've had successive archbishops being very reticent about moving too far in any one direction even someone like Rowan Williams who we know before he became archbishop was very much in favor of uh, this kind of positive step, so i the point is i don't think we need to we should be holding our breaths that anything will happen because they will be too fearful that it would provoke a huge backlash globally
1: yeah i mean that's the narrative that's always espoused i'm not saying it's wrong but that it's it's not about the English scene, and let's not forget that this is just the Church of England, and you're using language of fearful. I think I possibly would go a little bit further and say that, in terms of income generation and growth, the more conservative members of the Anglican Communion are bringing that into the picture. And think there's potentially a reticent to lose them because they're kind of bringing a lot of the positive statistics in there. But we already do have examples of people within the Anglican Communion splitting. And obviously one of the side effects of COVID this year was that the Lambeth mm. conference didn't happen. And I think that would have been really interesting because obviously this hit the news a wee while ago now when partners were invited yeah. except yeah. two same-sex partners. And that's part of debate on really what was the intention are they signaling early on in the living in love and faith project that they aren't really going to move but it also raised a big question of why on earth are spouses invited as a matter of course which is a kind of other issue within the church of england but it would have been interesting if the lambeth conference had gone ahead we could have got a little bit more insight into what's going on that wider anglican communion as it is it hasn't happened and so it's harder to get an understanding of how that's functioning.
0: You mentioned splits there, and of course in the last week or so a church called St Helens Bishop's Gate. <laughs> <laughs> who indeed have announced that they are in a quote state of broken partnerships with the house of bishops over the bishops handling of sexuality basically they're kind of semi-leaving the church of england but more like flouncing out in a sulk than actually doing anything serious but it is over the fact that there is not a consistent fuck gay people message coming from yeah the house and of it's bishops.
2: i mean it it would be I think it is overstating it to say that they're leaving the church of england it's It's like they want to make as big a statement as they possibly can without losing whatever privileges that b- being the part of the Church of England affords them. The thing is with churches like this there's already alternative episcopal oversight for them right so it's not like we're we're not trying to include them and let them have their opinion it's just that they want everyone to have. The opinion that they have, and to practice in the same way that they practice. It's all or nothing for them. You must love Jesus in the way that we claim to love Jesus, or you clearly don't love Jesus at all. They want it their way or the highway, basically.
1: And we saw this, you know, back in 2017, when the uh, Scottish Episcopal Church decided to legalise same-sex marriage and was obviously part of the Anglican Communion or one of the early parts of the Anglican Communion to do so. We saw this with a church in Edinburgh at St Thomas, that said that did the exact same flounce. They did the exact same flounce of you are not inclusive of our views, and so we're going. And so, it, I just feel like this is so to be expected. And I am not, I am not shocked. A long time ago, when I was doing mediation, change management, all that sort of stuff, I never catered to the person who flounced out the room they're not willing to be part of the conversation they're not willing to give and take they're not willing to have a conversation i'm not going to give power to their flounce and i think one thing that's quite frustrating is that we sometimes seem to give power and a uh, place at the table to the person who's watching. yeah
2: i think that's exactly right and, and i think that's one of the really big problems with these shared conversations is that not everyone who's who's coming to those shared conversations is is doing so in good faith.
1: I'm at a point now where I am not engaging in conversations about the validity of my being. I will debate most things in life. I'm happy to have that conversation. But for my own personal well-being and an act of love to myself and an act of respect to who God has made me to be is that I'm not going to enter in a conversation with the validity of my being, of my personhood, of my faith is on the docket. And that's one thing that really concerns me in the narrative in the UK. And it's something actually um, was brought up in a completely different book, which is why I'm no longer talking to white people. We said we've normalized a debate where one person says, this is racist, then they have to have a racist on that goes, it's not racist. Why have we normalised this? The inclusion of extreme white right-wing views into the debate platform has just shifted the whole conversation. And I just, I will engage in debate in most things, but I'm not having the conversation with someone whose main point is you are not valid as a being. Your existence is not valid. Yeah, and I think importantly,
2: you know, you you say it shifts the whole conversation, which it does, but what it doesn't do is shift any of the ways that we, you know, move forward. It it just keeps things static. And and that's the whole point of this, is that the the talking points might change, but the, the way we actually go forward and the way we actually deal with people whose lives are affected by this stuff doesn't change at all.
1: I would even go one step further and say it doesn't keep it static. It moves it further away because there perhaps was a point where we were having conversations where we weren't normalizing one person saying, you don't exist. I I deny your existence. And it's kind of moving it even further away. And uh, let's not forget conversion therapy is still legal in this country.
0: So St. Helens put out this big statement about this flounce, as I think you accurately referred to it, And there's a bit that really jumped out to me, which is St. Helens believes that scripture clearly and consistently teaches that it is God's good plan that the only loving and God honoring place for sexual practice is within the marriage of one man and one woman. And I have to say, my mind is blown every time someone says, oh, scripture clearly and consistently teaches that because you are either a liar or you haven't read the Bible. Adam and Eve, definitely not married. David, Solomon, lots and lots, hundreds of women, many of whom are not their wives, but just their concubines. You've got Ruth seducing Boaz in order to win his favor. You have Rahab, who is a sex worker being presented as a hero of the faith for assisting the conquering Israelites and taking over her town. She is never judged for her sex work. It's never even presented as any sort of problem. You have all sorts of men having sex with all sorts of women, and it's only judged in a very few cases. You have the story of someone seducing their father in law and being praised for the cleverness of their strategy. The amount of complicated narratives around sex and sexuality in the Bible is near endless. And to claim that the Bible clearly and consistently teaches anything about sex and sexuality is bollocks. It is just absolute nonsense. You can say, I believe it is of primary importance that sex is only for a married man and a woman. And okay, fine, you can believe that. You're a homophobe, but you can believe that if you want. But you can't claim that that's what the Bible clearly and consistently teaches, because we can all read the Bible. I worry that people don't realize that we all have access to it and go, Oh, no, that's clearly Yeah, and untrue. I think
2: um, it's really important to realise where this whole idea of the plain meaning of Scripture comes from, because that's a very modern take. You know, prior to the Protestant Reformation, nobody was talking about the plain meaning of Scripture, uh, because we all recognised that it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and so, for for anyone to turn around and say, "Well, Scripture is very clear on this; it only means this." is a nonsense. As early as Origen of Alexandria, who was 185 to 254, you know, we had multiple meanings of even a single word of scripture. And, you know, he's considered the often considered the first theologian. So the idea that we can think about these things in that way is a huge oversimplification.
0: Okay, so we've been extremely negative. So I just really want to quickly say, do we think 2021 is going to be any better?
2: I think the challenges are going to be potentially going to be different. A lot of it's going to depend on what happens with the coronavirus, with vaccines and that kind of thing. But the challenges that face the country are going to be obviously economic and, and also one of collective trauma as well. I think that we're not going to, you know, really be able to get to grips with in in a very short space of time. It's going to take a lot longer than perhaps we would like. I think there's potential for 2021 to be better than 2020. At least we don't have to spend, we won't potentially have to spend the vast majority of it cooped up inside. Perhaps we can get out a little bit more. And also perhaps this Gives us opportunities for mutual aid, for new ways of doing and thinking about politics and about communities and about church that were not previously forthcoming or or even possible.
1: I I think I'm an eternal optimist, but I am am hopeful for 2021. I have been inspired and humbled by the way that communities have come together and, and done some just beautiful things I know even within within our home I've got to know my neighbors so much better over this time just from you know standing in my doorway and waving because that's the closest thing to social contact I've had all day because I'm married to a grumpy old man who doesn't like people so I've just been like neighbors talk to me please someone talk to me but you know a lot of what I do as a job is kind of community work I'm seeing communities that now know each other in a way that previously the average person on the street wouldn't be able to tell you the names of their neighbours. And that's in smaller towns, that's not in cities. And so the possibility of that in 2021, where you can build on that momentum and actually do much bigger community projects, community picnics and outings and and, um, all sorts of things like that, I think we could see some really interesting grassroots initiatives coming out where people know the local community better and are filled with motivation to go out and do something so uh yeah i'm hopeful for 2021
0: hopefully we haven't been too depressing a podcast today i hope that you've enjoyed the episode we've gone for a slightly looser feel and just talked about some of the stuff that's been happening we'll be back on our usual nonsense in a couple of weeks time sarah thank you very much for joining us as always you can find us on the usual podcast feed places you can find us at facebook.com slash bread and rosaries you can find us on twitter at bread underscore rosaries and you can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com uh, we'd love to hear feedback thoughts all that sort of thing you can find Adam where
2: in the world? You can find me on Twitter at commie x i a n. Thank you very much
0: for joining us, everyone. I hope that you've had a lovely Christmas so far, and that you don't go out and spread coronavirus too much over New Year. Sarah, what song would you like us to play out on?
2: Santa Baby by Eartha Kitt. All right. Can we get um, Can we get Millennium Prayer by uh, Cliff Richard? All right. Here's some, Here's some indie bullshit that I picked then.
4: Bye bye bud. Bye, bye.
0: Does
1: this mean I don't have to do it again?
0: Yes.